the question was posited because one of the complaints was we're seeing terrible feed efficiency. They're not getting what they had formulated, which I get that, right? But there was no direct response to that, okay? Mm-hmm. And that that is probably one of the biggest problems that, that I see all the time is that this complete fundamental lack of really caring about what it is that I'm manufacturing. Yeah. Because yeah. it's what about? It's about dollars and cents at the end of the day. A whole new era of communication in the feed mill industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds in the global feed mill industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a feed mill, to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. Welcome to the Feed Science Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and all that's working in the global feed mill industry. Welcome to the Feed Science Podcast. My name is Adam Fahrenholz, and today my guest is someone who's been in a number of different roles uh, in the feed industry for a number of years and is now the managing uh, a managing partner at White River Ag Consulting, Jared Froschner. Jared, how are you doing today? I'm well. Thank you for asking. Good, good, great. So Jared and I have known each other since I was a student at Kansas State University in various different uh, different roles. Um, you'd come back and do things at the university and we'd see each other at conferences. And he's got a pretty interesting breadth of experience on things related to manufacturing and quality control and regulatory and, and is doing some interesting things in that space now. So I guess, Jared, if you'd like, um, take some time and if you want to introduce your yourself to the, the folks, the audience and uh, give your background and then a little bit on uh, what you're doing now as well. Yeah, so thanks, Adam. So, yeah, I've been in the feed industry or agriculture now for 50 now. And it's amazing how fast time goes. Um, I graduated 96 and 98 with my bachelor's and then master's in feed science. Um, Back then, that would have been uh, Steve Trailer was the predecessor for for me. Um, And then following me would have been uh, Lila McKinney um, in, in the program. You were a little bit behind there. I, I knew your dad was there. How's your dad? He's doing well. He's actually someone I uh, I put on the list to potentially be a guest for the podcast. He doesn't know that yet. Um, you know, hopefully, he's if he listens to this, he'll go, I'm sorry, what? But no, he's uh, he's doing well. He's enjoying enjoying retirement. But he and mom moved back to Manhattan, as as so many people do. So back to Manhattan, Kansas, and, and hanging out there. Does he still have the Mustang? He does. Absolutely. What? <laughs> So I started my career in 98 with uh, Pier- with the old Purina Mills um, before Land Lakes purchased them um, in process research. So I was stationed out in Gray Summit, and I did a lot of technical work with the um, with their pelleting and liquid systems at the time. Uh, I moved over to Roche, which morphed into um, DSM, and I spent many years there um, at DSM in various roles um, for the first time, um, sales, marketing, technical service. I did some plant formulation work, um, and then life took us out to uh, Garden City, Kansas, where I spent some time at High Plains Feed out there and uh, learned more about the liquid feed business and um, 
DSM plucked me back into the system where I had the opportunity to go back over into plant management. I was in the Fort Worth, Texas area. And then Elanco pulled me away, and um, I did a, a really enjoyable stint with Elanco where I was a global uh, advisor on the nutritional health side. And I had the opportunity to work with customers um, in about 23 countries. And um, about three years ago, my wife and I decided that we were going to go do our own thing. Um, I started my own consulting practice, and and I also have a small manufacturing, premix manufacturing business that I own before the partners. So uh, it's it's been a challenging stretch here. Uh, owning your own business is uh, not for the faint of heart. Um, because at the end of the day, if you don't bring the money in, you don't eat. So, um, but, but it's been a, it's been an enjoyable, um, adventure and, uh, I'm looking forward to visiting with everybody today. Seems like you, uh, you also chose a, a particularly good time to start, start your own business too. You, uh, you just decided you wanted some more challenges sometime right around 2020. seems like it's a pretty good, pretty good time to bite off as, as much as you could chew as possible. Well, you know, I think that's an interesting comment because I think COVID did really change the dynamic a bit. I mean, there's been a lot of obviously work at home stuff. Um, I think it kind of, cult- uh, I think it inculcated a little bit of an independent spirit in some folks to go do their own thing. I, I think the, if we look back, the Affordable Care Act really kind of changed the healthcare matrix equation in the United States. And in many regards, um, as a small business owner now, the insurance market, the health insurance market, is it's it's not the same, but it it's approaching what we would see in Canada, and so there's less restriction. If if healthcare is a concern for you, well, it's quite reasonable right now on the open market. So that really lowered a barrier, and and. You know, I think there were some other changes that that incentivized people as far as the the tax policies in what 2017 that incentivized people to to kind of take that leap. So I think it was the right time to do it. Yep. So I'm interested in uh, obviously the kind of independent consulting. You know, I, I think a lot of folks are probably somewhat familiar with with what that can entail from the standpoint of they've had independent folks come in their facility and that sort of thing and certainly we can talk some more about that but I'm interested in the uh in the the premix side what are some of the interesting things that you get to do with the kind of having a small independent premix manufacturing versus what you might have dealt with when you were at Roche or DSM or something like that 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 gives you some interesting things you can do well, I, I think the number one thing, and I see this both on the consulting practice side, and I see it too in my manufacturing business, is the focus on R&D is probably, is probably the most important yet disregarded aspect of what you would do when creating your own business. And I, I work with clients today who don't have the experience in R&D. And they kind of stumble around, and it's an essential part of your business plan. If you're going to strike out and make your own product or um, improve a manufacturing process to be more efficient, that R&D piece 
in a formal R&D program is essential to the success of the business. And the reason why is, is because it focuses your business in on what the important pieces are, okay? Was this change a positive change in the manufacturing efficiency of our business? What is the cost impact of this development that we've that we've developed? Is there intellectual property that can be wrapped around um, this work? And to date, we've been with this small little business on the manufacturing side. We at this point have we've been in business now for three years, and we've had two success two patent applications are winding their way through the um through the international patent office so now I, I will say there's a downside and and i think that this is another thing that i've learned is that as an independent business owner you you're you're far more acute and aware of changes in governmental policy and this also ties in with the regulatory piece because you get to live this now, and a good a good example of this is the um, the changes to the R and D tax credit system uh, within the um, um, the last tax reform bill. Was that in twenty seventeen, Adam? Well, you got me. Um, sound sounds right. I'd have to go look it up to know for sure. I think it was. Well, anyway, it used to be you could take your R and D expenses as an expense on the business in the year that they occurred. So there was a direct incentive for someone or a business to invest in their business from both from a, both from an R&D but also an intellectual property. However, that changed in the most recent tax change and now you have to set all of that out on a I think we have it set up on a 7-year depreciation schedule. Okay. So now instead of just taking that as a normal business expense, which kind of pushes you forward, especially if you're in looking at, at new products and new processes, th- that's not the case anymore. Um, now that expense has to be depreciated over a period of time, which makes your business a little more difficult to get off the ground. I've not been a real fan of this particular tax policy. Sure. And it sounds like, you know, that it's also to some extent discourages some of that that innovation in R&D, right? Because it, it makes it more difficult to do financially looking then you're going to end up looking and other businesses are as well. They're going to be looking for ways to, you know, get something to market quicker without maybe doing all of the the stuff to really have that product or that process all the way to the best that it can be because that investment just isn't as financially feasible as it might have been before. Well, I think that's true, Adam, and I think that that's if you look at let's let's kind of look at the animal feed industry right now from the totality of the situation. What what new products have come out that have really been groundbreaking? I mean, let's be honest with each other. I mean, it's been what 15, 20 years since we've seen a, a groundbreaking product come into the marketplace. Um, I I assume you could probably say, well. Have we reached the top of innovation for animal nutrition? Right. Hope not. But well, yeah, no, it's a, it's it's a, yeah, great question. Yeah, right. I mean, so um, I, I think that this tax thing, that this R and D situation, has not incentivized companies to to um, 
invest in that. Now, on the flip side, right, equipment right now, it's a pretty favorable equipment for a market or, excuse me, environment for um, expensing equipment purchases for capital investments. So, I mean, I guess there's a trade-off. So, I guess I'm going to put the money, our money, we put our money right now back into the plant uh, from the business, and then we we stick the rest of our personal funds into the R and D program, with the hope that that we'll see it we'll see it in uh, you know an economic incentive with that someday, but but that's the environment we live in, right? Yep. So that that that's an interesting kind of pathway to follow from the from the standpoint of and and you've gotten to see this from a number of different um, kind of a number of different things all the way from. from being in school up to what you're doing now, there's always been this kind of push-pull idea of um, the the art of anything, whether it relates to feed manufacturing, whether it be ingredient manufacturing or pre-mixing or finished feed manufacturing, kind of the art of doing all these things and the equipment and the managing of a facility, as well then as the the science that's behind it, that some of the innovation, but also some of the really the really technical things. So would you happen to have a, I don't know, to put you on the spot here, but a, a story kind of from anywhere in that, that history of yours of where kind of the, the, the science versus the manufacturing, um, the, the day-to-day logistics or, or the art of doing things really either complemented each other or, or did it where it was, hey, no, the science says we need to do this, but it was really much more of a of a push to say, well, yeah, the science may say we could make this process more efficient, or we could we could delve deeper in it. But this is what we've got right now, and this is the equipment that we have in the plant. So this is what we need to do. Where those things are kind of coming to a, a head. Yeah, um, yeah. I had a client two years ago. Um, you know, obviously they had invested in pelleting. Um, some some longer term conditioning, you know. Obviously, the whole concept that oh my gosh, let let's let's cook out the starch and let let's let's drive efficiency, right? Sure. Okay, so well, that's all fine and good, but nobody was capturing any data, nor analyzing any data regarding the process itself. Nobody was doing a durability test. I mean, you know, you and I could probably spend four hours talking about durability tests. Yeah. But in this particular case, I just wanted them to do a damn tumble test. That's it. <laughs> okay. So we weren't even doing that. But most concerning is that they were formulating diets every week, every week. Dr. Fahrenholz, and this is where you get to come in because I'm not <laughs> the expert in this. Their formulated diet for this particular segment was 12.5% crude protein, okay? Per. Routinely, every week, they were sending samples for NIR in, okay? Nobody was paying attention that for the last year, their crude protein was running at 16 and a quarter. Oh, so we're going ahead and giving away some money there. Ah, their moistures were running another 2% over their formulated target. Is that a concern? Yeah, yeah, a little bit. We're, we're at, at, at best, we're diluting nutrients out and things, and at worst, we got God knows what's happening in bins and bags and everything else. 
the, the nice black layer of mold that forms yeah. in the bottom of the bin cone. Okay. Yeah. And so the question was posited because one of the complaints was we're seeing terrible feed efficiency. They're not getting what they had formulated, which I get that, right? But there was no direct response to that, okay? Mm-hmm. And that, that is probably one of the biggest problems that, that I see all the time is that this complete fundamental lack of really caring about what it is that I'm manufacturing. Yeah. Because yeah. it's what about? It's about dollars and cents at the end of the day. Of course, no, great point. What's that, Adam? Oh, I was going to say it's a it's a great point. It, it it makes me think of the conversations that we were having more and more today, and and it the feed the feed mill will will be at the end of this chain as it often is. But the investment in sensors and data acquisition and all this and big data, which I think all has some really interesting potential, some stuff I'd love to explore in the feed mill from an academic standpoint. But I also always think about it just like what you said, and I'll go into feed mills and say, yeah, but the data that's actually accessible now without going into all this high tech stuff isn't being used in most cases anyway. It's and not. so how, how high tech do we need to get if, like you said, well, do you run PDIs? Sure. Yeah, we run PDIs. Do you trend them against? Well, no, we just put them on a piece of paper because someone somewhere told us we had to, but we don't really ever look at them and it's going, okay, well. You know, that's an interesting comment. I ran into that particular benchmarking scenario, right, um, last year. And this was with, a, it was a client down in the southeast, okay? And every week they were required to put in benchmarks, okay? He absolute benchmark, durability, all this stuff, right? But nobody looked at it. Right. Now, yep. of course, if they didn't put it in, so I actually advised the client at the time, I said, well, I'll tell you what, let's not put any information in the benchmark for two weeks and let's see what happens. <laughs> right? yep. And, you know, the poor guy was like, well, they'll get mad. I said, well, obviously, let's elicit a response, right? I mean, let's see, because if they really care about the data, well, it should be really quick, right? That wasn't. It was two weeks, three weeks. Then this poor person gets a call from HR. How come you're not putting your benchmark data in? Well, why is HR involved in this? Right? Right. So in other words, we were, nobody cared what the data was. They just cared that the box was checked. Yep. Okay. Absolutely. Yep. Well, that's a, a frustration that I see that, 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 you know, we're going to have to start getting serious about this because, you know, I just gave a talk here, would have been a year ago in in um, September in Malaysia, okay? And we, we had customers there from Malaysia. There was a couple from Thailand. There were some folks from Borneo, from Indonesia. I'm going to tell you something, Adam. Those folks were serious. They're serious. I spent probably three hours talking with one poultry producer and the data that he collects and he analyzes to drive his business forward was absolutely incredible. Okay. So are they going to pass us up in efficiency? What is it? I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, no, it's a, I think it's a great question. And, and I, I would, I would agree with you when we, um, 
typically when we, you know, when, when I travel or when we hold events here um, at the university, I think this is true probably for my, my colleagues at, at other universities as well. I would say we see a lot of that when when folks are coming uh, from other regions of the world, the way that they um, the way that they do collect data, the way that they look at it. Um, you know, they'll ask questions about, well, do you, do you test for this or do you test for that? You know, what what is your typical water activity? Um, you know, what is um, I was talking with one of our previous guests. Uh, we're talking about like pellet hardness, for example, and they're always quite surprised. And I'm not even necessarily saying that either of those things are things that you do need to test for. I think every every feed and every facility has got different things they need to test for. So I don't want anybody to think that I'm sitting here saying we should be testing for those. But they find it very interesting when I say, oh, no, not in this country. No, Nobody tests for, for that. And it's just, well, it's, it's incredibly important to what we do. And I think you're right. I think that there's a a very big difference in the way that we look at making feed versus the way the rest of the world. Now you get to make the argument too of, well, if we look at feed efficiencies and if we look at, you know, production efficiencies and the amount of feed produced and all that, then we still kind of win here in the U S on most of those metrics. Um, But the margins get smaller and smaller and there are changes to, um, you know, what's going to be effective as ingredients change and prices change and all those kinds of things as well. So I think that's an interesting part of it. I think the other interesting part from a from a management standpoint is also if you're collecting that data and then not using it, at some point, your uh, I think your employees get a little sick of collecting data that of they, they know isn't isn't doing anything there. Why am I doing this? And then all of a sudden they're not going to be collecting it with the kind of rigor that you would like. Well, of course. In fact, most people, it's like, what do I call that? The, the old notebook syndrome. They just literally write stuff down. I've, yep. I've been in feed mills where, where employees just write it down. And then I ask the question, well, did you run the test? Why? Why? They, they don't care. Right. They just want to see that a number's put in there. I've seen that in feed yards for years. For years. So let me ask you a question. What is the optimal? What's the, what's the first sign in a feed yard on the flaking side that the nutritionist is concerned that the the um, mill operator can't make a consistent flake? What's the what's the nutritionist? I, I'm not sure I'm following your question. Try, well, try that again. If I if I set my flake weights at twenty four and a half pounds per bushel, yep, okay, gotcha. which is an aggressive setting, yeah, okay, right, we're going to drive some conversion of starch right there, okay, because <laughs> you know you get it much lower than that, we're going to start to see a little bit of uh, we could see a little bit of acidosis, correct? Right, yeah, nice and nice okay. and thin, yep. So most of the guys are going to lay up and say, you know what? I'm going to set it at 26 and a half pounds a bushel because I really can't hurt too much there, right? And if they do go a little tighter on the rolls, I'm not going to get into an acidotic situation, right? Yep. What would your thoughts be if you saw them set it at 28.5? I'd I'd look at it probably similar to what I look at in a lot of feed manufacturing situations where I'd say, you know, it, 
it's risk reward, right? And you're not taking a risk. You're not playing with the the system is typically how I, I look at that and say, well, okay, yeah, you're, you're playing it safe. Um, but what, what's it costing you to, to play it safe? Uh, when, you know, you can maybe get a little tighter against your, your margin, you can get, um, closer to that line. You just might have to test a little bit more. Um, it's, it's an easy thing for me to say, but it's, it's also similar to what I talk to when I'm talking to people about how they're running their pellet mills. Yeah, you run it nice and easy and everything and no nobody asks about there and you know unplug it nearly as often but what are you giving up for that versus a pellet mill operator that'll play with the pellet mill right and and actually try to really make it do something you know i i did is that is, we call this a segue right there you go so i like that segue because that's another thing that that i fight all the time is steam pressure okay mm-hmm. and i Look, we could probably have a whole session on this one. I like to see the steam pressure at 60 PSI. Okay. That's where I like it. I think, and the reason I like it there is because I'm driving BTUs. And it's a little bit on the ragged edge. I get that. You can probably convince me to go to 40. But the Mm -hmm. reality of the matter is almost every pellet mill in the southeastern U.S., I can assure you, today is running at 20 PSI. Okay. And because they don't, to run it at 40, to run it at 60 PSI, 60 PSI is what, four bar? Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, they run it, that, that it's difficult to run. You have to pay attention to the rolls. You have to pay attention to your die face, your roll gap, because it'll slide on you. But yet, nobody cares. So the operator, he slides around the corner, he sets it at 20. And life just moves right on down the road. Yeah, I, I'm I'm a little lower than you. I usually like to see it between thirty and forty, but you know, I I also think that that's one of the things too. And I think I think steam pressure is actually a really good example of of that that science versus the art kind of the thing where it's you can make arguments and you can go either way, and then uh, and then it's going to matter, you know, how old your steam harness, you know, how many bends are there, what's the run, is it properly insulated, how good are your traps, on and on and on and all this other stuff. Um, the thing that drives me the most nuts, though, more than than I, because in reality, there's not huge amounts of difference in that in that kind of you know twenty to sixty range in in the BTUs and. You're, you're starting to get into, to your point, you're starting to get into, you know, fine tuning, right? What drives me nuts is when I'll go into one and it seems like, well, you know, it couldn't, it wasn't running well the other day. So we changed steam pressure and we changed steam pressure. And I'm going, how many times have you changed steam pressure uh. in the last like six months? And it's like, well, we, you know, we try, we probably change it about once every, you know, 40 days or so. Try to, and will you just pick a spot and let it alone? Find a spot where it's going to sit. Don't touch it anymore. And, and, figure out what to adjust beyond that, right? Um, I think that's usually my biggest my biggest pet peeve on it. Well, yeah, so so that goes back, though, to your earlier comment there, Adam, is that hardness, okay? Mm-hmm. So I use a call hardness tester. I think it's the best thing ever. Well, it's not the best, but, I mean, it's a pretty good measure, right, if you know how to use mm-hmm. it. Well, the issue there is is that that little hardness test I can tell more about the steam quality that they're running in the middle with that little hardness test. 
they should be running that hardness test on every batch of feed that goes through there. At least the live production guys can't, because now it gives them some some measure to say, why are you guys messing with this? We need a consistent product, not too hard, but we don't want powder, right? Right. That That's what we need, because these chickens, they perform, same with pigs, same with any animal. They perform well with consistent product that is the same every time it's put in front of the animal. Yep. No, that's that's 100%. That I agree with that all all the way. The uh, we've heard a lot actually recently, especially on the swine side from from producers that have said, "Look, you know, I don't want absolute horrible pellets. Obviously, I, I want there to be pellets, but more important to me than like having a ninety percent pellet at the feeder or something like that. And it, I would rather have seventy five, eighty percent pellets at the feeder all the time." constantly just i i know that's what i'm getting then some days it's 90 and some days it's 60 because y'all are over there in the feed mill going up and down and formulation this and and steam that conditioning whatever particle sides all over the board and there's no control and then I, i can't set my feeders i've got you know intakes going up and down all this other kind of stuff and it's it's about that consistency which i think a lot of the the data idea gets back into how how do you know if you're being consistent? Well, the only way you know if you're being consistent is if you can measure it. And if you're going to measure it, you got to have data point. And then after that, you know, pick what works best for you. You know, PDI, particle size, pellet hardness, moistures, use an NIR, use a moisture oven. I, I don't care necessarily. Uh, I think different tools for everybody and not everybody can do or, or wants to do or can afford to do everything. But you got to you got to find something and then be able to tell me, Am I making feed today like I was yesterday, like I was last week, like I was last month, or am I all, all over the board? I don't even know it. Yeah, and so th- this also ties back to to the difference between what I see domestically and what I see internationally. Okay, so now this could be a simplistic way of looking at things, Adam. I, I get that, right? But I've always viewed the United States animal food production industry as brute force Mm -hmm. average daily gain okay now of course ostensibly we say that that um feed efficiency is important right but at the end of the day these companies today make money by turning meat that's how they make it they're not feed companies they're meat companies So the more pounds of meat that they turn in a given period of time, the more money that they're going to make, okay? Our friends in Asia, in parts of Europe, in parts of South America, they have to rely on efficiency again. They don't have the resources, the unlimited resources that we have in the United States, So that guy that I spent the three hours with in Malaysia, he's looking for every single penny that he can find in efficiency in his operation because corn is double the price coming off the boat in Kuala Lumpur compared to the price of corn going from Iowa to Alabama. (laughs) So it's a totally different game. Now, I had some guys in Thailand one time explain to me 
um, that the whole thing about putting the houses on stilts, et cetera. And I, I still am pondering that. I'm not a chicken guy, right? But I did spend some time in Bangladesh walking operations with uh, Bangladeshi producers. And when you see guys over there mixing feed by hand, okay, knowing that they're making money on each egg that comes through, it's not an average daily gain argument. It's all about the efficiency of that particular bird and and the struggles they have there. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think think that's the other thing that, you know, there are, there are, you know, a hundred different ways to, to be successful, I think, in, in the industry, if, especially if you are talking about the production animal industry like that. You know, we've seen, we've seen poultry companies that, you know, have made very, very poor pellets, for example, and others that have made very, very good pellets and both are sitting in the, you know, the top five domestic poultry producing companies in, in the country kind of a thing, because, they're they're doing it in different ways. They're focusing in different places, and probably neither one is is at optimum, right? And I think that becomes the the goal moving forward is to figure out where that optimum point is, whether it be on and again, pick your metric. I don't I don't care. It it can be pellet durability. It can be you know pellet quality finds versus pellets. It can be particle size. We've played around with things here talking about mixer efficiency. You know. How, how just, you know, we've always, mixer efficiency has got to be less than 10. Cool. All right. Why? You know, what what's the reason? If you ask anybody why, there's very few many, very few people that, you know, well, 10% is because it's what somebody made up a long time ago based on, you know, the analytical variance of the test that they were using at the time. And it's not necessarily absolutely tied to animal performance. And it might very well be if you're feeding that baby chick, then you better have a really good CV. That thing's eating grams per day. You're feeding that dairy cow. Yeah. Yeah. She eats a lot. She, she eats quite a bit. And you how know, much that's you a brilliant up? point, Adam. Absolutely brilliant. In fact, let me, let me say this. What would you say if I told you that I tell my clients don't get bent out of shape on mixer efficiency unless you're getting close to 20? That's I, I Oh, I'm, I'm there with you. Now, there will be people that are listening to this that want to jump through the screen and, uh, let them and, jump through the screen. You know, Show me the data. Yep. In fact, let me go a step further. Why don't we haul out any studies today? Well, we can go back 50 years if you want, maybe 100. Where are all the studies that demonstrate the effect of mix efficiency, mixer efficiency on ruminants? It doesn't exist. Right. There was a yep. small non-replicated study out of Texas that showed nothing. Yep. Okay. So, and I've, you, you've seen those big mixers. I mean, how do you even measure mixed uniformity right. in those big mixers, those 20 ton mixers, right? Yeah. The, I think, I think there's, I think there's a couple of interesting parts to it too, in that, you know, I, I agree with you. I don't think the CV has to necessarily be that great. And I don't even necessarily think it has to be on a dairy cow. I think you start talking about, you know, finishing swine and even, you know, older turkeys and even broilers at a later age they can they're they're eating enough maybe that uniformity doesn't have to be down there now there's the regulatory argument and that you know is that a hill you want to die on with your fda or state inspector that walks in and says what do you mean you're not mixing your feed down to whatever especially obviously when it's medicated even though it doesn't say anywhere in the regulations that it's got to be 10 it just says it has to be uniform 
Um, so I think that's a I think that's a part of it. The other part of it, and we've discovered this a little bit here in some work we've done um, that we're we're working on getting published. Some of these newer mixers, man, almost good luck not getting a relatively uniform CV anyway. There, I mean, we are a long way away from the you know four paddle paddle mixers on a long time. I mean, some of these, oh, I agree. You know, twin shaft counterpoise or intermeshing styles. I mean, almost by the time you turn them on, they're uniform anyway. And yeah, yet, and, and there has been significant moves forward in 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 the equipment side, and and I do think that's encouraging because I mean, twenty years ago, my gosh, you'd still get some of those old Marion paddle mixers that had those little nubs on the end, right? It used to be the paddle, and you'd look at that, and the feed doesn't move, and you're like, well, I'm not too sure we're even getting a mix here. So right, but that's yep. not the case today, right? But you know. And to, to our regulatory folks, I mean, I can understand they're getting a little heartburn listening to this, but then I would probably also push back a little bit and say, what do we do about permitted analytical variance? Right? Yep. So you're expecting me to get to a 10% CV when some of the analytes I look like, that I look at, that are common today, drugs are very commonly used. How do I define a 10% or lower CV where the permitted analytical variance for that particular analyte is 20%. Absolutely. Absolutely. And well, and, and between a lot of the stuff that's, you know, important from a health perspective and is, um, you know, also generally very valuable just from an expense perspective, a lot of those fall in that category, right? Drugs and enzymes and probiotics and all those things that absolutely, you know, can do an excellent job in, in what they're designed to do. But you can't assay for them very well because they're all over the place. So what do we do? Okay, we're going to, you know, we're going to analyze, you know, manganese and zinc and synthetic amino acids and all that, all things that are also very important and that do analyze pretty well, but it's not guaranteeing the mixing of the other stuff, although you make the assumption that it, that it does. And, you know, we get really hung up, I think, in some cases on, on certain numbers that may mean more or less than than we think they do in some of those cases. So. I mean, Rob McCoy's data wasn't it Rob McCoy. Yeah, twenty um, percent didn't hurt the chickens a bit. Nope, nope. And there was um, there was some stuff done. Uh, I know it was done. I think out of Joe Hancock's lab at K State where they did some stuff. You know, barely turned on the mixer and and just kind of ran it through the whole thing and by the time it got to the animals after going through a number of bins and you know bags and trucks and whatever all it was i'd have to go back and look at the work i, I don't recall it exactly but again they were they were fine and Did so he retire you know i'm not entirely sure i think so somebody someone, told again, me some, that he retired he wasn't know. that old was he i you know time flies though jared yeah, no, I, 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 you know, my kids, my son graduated high school four years ago and my daughter's graduated this year. She's headed to school and boy, Adam, I remember I was in graduate school. <laughs> yep. Oh, so, uh, yep. well, I don't know. So anyway, yeah, that's a, it's been a good conversation, man. Yeah. Um, I, so some of the standard questions I think we've uh, we, we've kind of covered. We talked about some high impact to various improvements, and um, you know we always talk try to talk about some things that maybe others in the industry you know might not might not have heard before or might disagree with. So I think we hit a, I think we hit a few of those, which is which is awesome. It's time for our famous three. 
So we'll just kind of follow it up with a, a few questions at, at the end um, that we always kind of try to ask and give folks uh, an idea of, of how they can further educate themselves. If, if you had a particular resource to choose from, it could be a book or it could be, you know, a, a particular periodical that you really like or, or something like that, that is specific to our our industry in, in one way or the other. It doesn't have to be feed milling exactly. It could be, you know, uh, you know somewhere related to it. Is there one that comes to mind that you would suggest like, hey, everyone should have a subscription to this or should go buy this and put it on their shelf? There's only one book that you should have on your shelf, if you can find it, would be FMT1. Uh, so we're going to go all the way back to Yellow, 76 yes, Yellow. the old Harry Post book. There you go. Because I think that what Harry's genius was, was Harry's genius was his ability to take complex engineering arguments and break them down in a logical fashion so that the individual mill manager, if he or she chose, could understand how it applied to their operation. Okay? So, but you can't find it. It's absolutely impossible to find that book. Do they still have some in Manhattan? Um, I mean, I think there's probably some hanging out in like the libraries. I, I think so. I think Charles, uh, Charles Stark, I think Charles is the only one I know of. And there's probably some others out there that have sitting on his shelf of the full rainbow collection of one through five. I think I, I don't know where he found them all. I've got I think he even has one of the Spanish versions of I want to say it's four that was done in Spanish. Um, I've got a five and a four. I've got um, one, two, four, and five. Yeah, yeah. There's, I mean, there's some. It's, I mean, you were talking about like nerding out on feed that people are like, why? Who's trying to collect these? But they are. They're they they are somewhat collectible to our particular our particular group. I remember using. I remember though, you know, I I, I like the most recent ones, and then um, now AFIA is putting it um, online, and we've done some updating to various of the chapters and we'll continue to do that over over time there's been a team of us that have, have worked on that and i like five um for you know it, it it was up to date in 2005 and you know that's why we're still trying to, to update some more of it but i would say when like when i was in school the one i would pull off the shelf in the lab was one that was the one i'd pull off the most because it had kind of what you said it had the, the stuff very simply broken down. It had all of the tables and all that kind of stuff in that were relevant in the seventies or still relevant, you know, 30 years later um, because, you know, math was math, sort of a sort of math a thing. is math, right? Yeah. Well, then there was an interesting section in there on, on particle size analysis because Harry, yep. Harry started to publish his work on, on the, on the logarithmic scale for particle size back in that era. But there was a good discussion in there on modulus of fineness and modulus of yep. uniformity. And you yep. know, there are very few people that understand anymore how to read those numbers. Okay. Yeah. Hundred percent. But yet, but yet it's a simple test that can be done in the feed mill compared to the multi sieve test that gives us that information, right? Yep. Now I am a firm believer in A in in S three nineteen. Okay. I think it's a really good method. That being said, people don't do it because it is difficult to do. Okay. Yep. yep. Absolutely. So for so for those who are aren't quite as familiar with the lingo, so S three nineteen, I think it's point five now. 
Yeah. Um, is the ASAE was pre- or previously ASABE standard for the um, for particle size analysis. Um, but yeah, to you, to your point, and, and some people do the full sieve stack and some people do um, like the three sieve method that was developed uh, by the animal science guys there at K-State to, to break it down. But it's funny in today's day and age, because everybody's gotten so tied up on particle size. What's, you know, what is the DGW? What's the number of, of you know, 800 microns or whatever. And I tell them all the time, I'm going, yeah, but if that's all you know, how many different ways do you want me to show you I can make 800 microns based uh, on, you know, I, I, it, I can do it for, you know, a million different iterations. Mm-hmm. And I think back to a class that we all had to take at, at K-State back in the day, um, principles of milling. Um, and it was, it was taught by uh, a number of different folks over the years. And we talked about that modulus of fineness, modulus of uniformity, and basically broke everything up into you know, coarse, medium, and fine, and more and more today, even though I also very much believe in the particle size method and think it's an incredibly valuable thing to do. But if you don't actually look at all the numbers, if you just look at the DGW number, maybe the SGW number, the standard deviation, that's not the whole story. You know, the whole story is how many particles are over 1,200 microns and how many are between 1,200 and 600 or whatever, whatever spot you want. But again, that's going back to our first part of our conversation it there's data there are you actually looking at the data or not well how many people look at particle count okay right and and i'll give you a good example i mean years ago we worked on some stuff with dairy cattle and we would look at at biotin one biotin source at four hundred thousand particles per gram versus um at the time it would have been roche's biotin um at at around um five million particles per gram well, it, 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 bottom line is that difference in particle count is what elicited the milk response from biotin. Mm-hmm. Okay, simply because we got we got it exposed to more bacteria within the rumen, but nobody looks at particle count, and it's a very important number. I've got two other books on my shelf that I use all the time. Okay, okay? one of them is the Safety Professionals Reference and Study Guide by Yates. That's a really good one. And then I stepped out and I bought this one here a while back called Risk-Based Engineering. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, come on. What do you do in your downtime, right? Some people read, uh, what was the, what were those novels? Was it Fabio? Did, do you remember who Fabio was? <laughs> I, I, I remember is strong. I know who, I know who he was and I, and I know the, the, the romance novels the, exactly. of that, that age. Yep. Right. Yep. Now, I don't read romance novels much anymore, right? So I read risk-based engineering, but but here's the take-home message. FDA and OSHA are really, 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 really starting to look at hazard assessments. Okay? Right. Yep. And that particular book really gets into that. I think it, it really starts looking at, it starts from the nuclear side, the, the, the absolute no-fail, but but the the concept of applying a probability to a particular situation, OSHA for sure is going to start expecting this. Yeah, I and agree. And the industry needs to wake up to that one. Yep, very much agree. All right, one last question for you, and then we'll we'll call the day. So you've gotten to experience the industry from a lot of different perspectives, and and now you're you're owning your own own businesses. 
um, and, and getting to interact with a lot of different people. So from, you know, your perspective, what is it that you think that sets apart the most successful folks that you've seen in the industry as far as their their professionalism, their professional development? What are the, the some of the main things that set them apart that make them successful in this field? Two things. Number one, in life, there's way too many chiefs and not enough Indians. Okay. Um, not everybody has the capability to be a manager. Not everybody has the capability to be an entrepreneur. Know, know what your capabilities are and play to your strengths. The second thing is know your lanes, Okay. Now, this is one I've always struggled with because I like to think that I know more than everybody else, right? You know me, Adam. I'm I'm not short on ego, correct? There you go. But we also need to be humble enough to know that we don't know everything. Know the lane that you excel in and don't be afraid to ask questions because we should always be in a constant state of learning, right? Right. Like risk-based engineering. I learned a lot about the nuclear power plant industry, more than I ever wanted to know. But I can apply that to what I do every day. Okay. So, yeah, those are really the two things I I look at. No, I I think that's great advice. And, and, you know, as a nice segue to to closing it out, I mean, that's what we hope that this this podcast can be about to some extent, right, Is, is talking to different folks and having having their input and having their perspective. And then hopefully people will take those things and learn, right? And they will learn something and they will figure out what is their lane or, boy, you know, something that was discussed is something that I could do or, oh, yeah, that doesn't quite sound like me, but there's this other thing over here that does. And I, I think there's a lot of a lot of value in that and trying to have those conversations about, you know, what are my strengths and and then building upon those strengths in order to be the most successful person. So with that, uh, I want to say thank you very much. I certainly enjoyed our conversation um, and we will hopefully talk with you again sometime soon. Yeah, take care, Adam. And it was really nice to see you. I haven't seen you in several years, so it's good to reconnect. Absolutely. Well, thanks, everybody. This has been the Feed Science Podcast and we'll look forward to having you join us for a new episode very soon. 